So let's uh, pray together before we jump into uh, the sermon. Father, I'm thankful for the fact that we have your word, that we have you, a personal God who revealed himself to us so that we might know you. Father, I pray that you come into our circumstances, that we might not only know of you, but know you intimately as we walk through the joys of life and the hardships of life. May we realize that you are there with us, that you are leading us to green pastures and you are walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death and we have nothing to fear whatever circumstances come our way. Father, would you give us boldness to come before your throne for those of us who may struggle with, with feeling guilty, with feeling unworthy because, well, in fact, we are unworthy. Who, who, for those of us who may be avoiding you because we, we realize just how, how much we fail the standard that we set for ourselves, let alone the standard that your word sets for us. May we realize that ultimately we are justified through your son, Jesus Christ. May we realize that we have been made clean through his blood and that even though we might be fully aware of our many faults and failings, you make us new. You make us clean. And so may we be people who are not full of ourselves when we come before your throne with boldness to seek out grace because we need grace. So Father, as we study your word today, I pray, God, and as we study the topic of, of prayer for the next few weeks, I pray that you form us and mold us into a people of prayer. I pray that you transform us and equip us for the work of the ministry that you have for us to do. And so often we think about the practical things, about the service, about what we can do on Sunday mornings. But how often do we think about our ministry as a ministry of prayer, of intercession for people who will never come before you, who will never seek you? May we be people who stand in the gap, praying for the people that we love and care for, praying for the nation that we love and care for, praying for the world to come and see the hope in Jesus that we've gotten the taste of. So Father, equip us as we dive into this topic. Give us a heart to be people of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Um, would you stand with me? And you can turn to the next slide with Matthew 6, 9. Uh, well, it's not 9 through 13. I put the wrong. Well, yes, it is 9 through 13. 6 and 9 through 13. Would you stand with me as we read uh, the Lord's Prayer? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that's the text we're going to be dwelling on. You may be seated for the next few weeks. Um, over the next few weeks, we're, we'll be talking about prayer and we're going to be using the Lord's Prayer as the guide for that to go into what the Bible teaches us about what prayer is, uh, what it does and how we should think about prayer, uh, or even how we should pray. Ultimately, this little sermon that we have today, uh, and the sermon series, in fact, is, is arising from a place of conviction in my own heart. Um, and what I suspect to be a reality, not only in my heart and, and in our churches for many people here, but many churches in the Western world. And my hope is that for the next few weeks as we study prayer, is that it would affect, and you can go to the next slide in this, affect how we as a church pray corporately, how we as people pray individually, and even how we functionally incorporate prayer in our Sunday gatherings. So when it comes to our thinking and our behavior, I think a, a lot of us ultimately, we, we tend to give uh, little time to prayer. And many of us, we may struggle with prayer for various different reasons. Maybe it's because, well, if you're being frank and honest with yourself, maybe it's because you're feeling bored when you pray. Maybe it's because whenever you pray, you start thinking about the grocery list, the things that you need to do, your mind starts wandering. Maybe it's because prayer seems to move slowly in a world that is so fast, right? Or maybe it is that you're driven by 
you know, practical accomplishment and productivity, and you think of your time in prayer as a, not really a productive time. It's a time wasted where nothing really happens. Nothing gets done. You can't really see anything change. And so you might struggle with seeing that as a wasted time. Now, in a world that's hyper and distracted by truckloads of entertainment, of information and phone notifications, prayer requires a lot of focus and slow down and attention. And the thing is that unless you make time for prayer, you will rarely find time for prayer. Because there's no almost, almost never a time in your life where you're just bored and have nothing to do. There's almost never a time where your mind can just wander, or where you accidentally walk into a time of prayer. You could be riding in your car and what used to be a silent car ride for 30 minutes is now filled with podcasts and audiobooks and you know all this type of stuff. You can always find entertainment to fill in the gaps. You never have to sit alone with your thoughts anymore. And the sad reality is that I think this struggle with prayer and slowing down is not simply a problem for the outside of the church. And I think the church has done a really good job at that, right? Pointing fingers outside the church when in fact we should be looking at the inside of the church. I think this is a problem for us. The reality is that we may confess to believe in an all-powerful God that hears our prayers, an all-powerful God that is alive and active in our world, and yet the modern Western church in many ways behaves like functional atheists. Right? We may say the right things and sing the right things, but sometimes we just behave like we don't really believe that. Like we may say that Jesus builds his church, yet our prayer life doesn't really point to that reality. And in many ways, we behave like it's all up to us. Like if we are just good enough in sharing the gospels, if, if, if we are just good enough in having answers to all the various questions, if we're just interesting enough, we're entertaining enough, then the church will grow. But in fact, no, it's Jesus who builds his church. And we may say that, you know, the Holy Spirit's at work in every believer. He's the one who sanctifies us to help us look more like Jesus. He's the one who transforms us yet. The reality is many Christians take the role of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. Have you noticed that? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, and here am I taking the role of convicting other people of their sin. Hey, you should change this. And instead of praying for God to move and to sanctify, we try to be the agents of change. And I wonder how many of us catch ourselves in this thinking, if, if, you know, if I just have the right knowledge, the right thing to say at the right time, then I'll be able to be of help to them. Then I'll be able to fix their problems or help them. But ultimately, I think we all know that it's God who fixes us. And God who changes us. And don't get me wrong, God uses people to do so, but how often do I rely on my own knowledge or my own ability instead of spending my time in prayer being led by and directed by God to do his work and not mine? So the ironic part is that sometimes it's actually the, the atheists and the skeptics who understand the amazing privilege of prayer uh, more than the church. Like, I love hanging out with skeptics and atheists, and I love dealing with the questions that arise, the philosophical problems and everything else. Uh, and more than once, I've been confronted by an atheist who, who responds to my belief that I believe in a God who hears my prayer. And their response is something like this. So you're telling me, Gunnar, that there is a God out there who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, the creator of heaven and earth, who sustains everything with his power, and he's spending his time listening to you whine about your financial problems or dating life? <laughs> you know, like That's what he's spending his time listening to? And that, the objection is, you know, isn't that just the pinnacle of narcissism? You think that if God existed, that he would be interested in you? And yet we read the word of God and what's amazing is that he says, yes. He says, yes, he is interested in you coming to him 
with your problems, coming to him like little children. And if you've noticed little children, they're not polished, right? They haven't really thought through a bunch of proposals. Like, like my, uh, my little girl, Sigurdos, this week alone, she's asked for a unicorn. <laughs> she's, she's asked for an electric car. Uh, and she's asked for one other thing that was quite expensive. I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to make her realize that money is a thing that needs to be considered when thinking about these things and reality when it comes to unicorns because they don't exist. And, uh, but she doesn't really like polish up her thinking or her wording before coming to me. And that's exactly what Jesus says when we should approach God like little children, come to him. Learn from little children and come to God in prayer. Now, when I'm confronted by this reality, when it's the atheist tells me, isn't this just narcissism? I think it's amazing that it's sometimes taken an atheist or a skeptic to remind me just what a privilege prayer is. It takes a skeptic to remind me how crazy it is what Hebrews 4.16 tells us. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is an intense reality. That is an amazing privilege that we have. And so starting next week, we will slowly start dissecting the Lord's Prayer to take sort of verses that may sound so familiar to us, or even overly familiar with us, to us, uh, like the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to chop it down and think about what it's actually teaching us about God, about prayer, about us. But before we start dissecting those verses, I want us to use this sermon as an introduction to prayer and why we ought to give ourselves to be people of prayer. And the verse I want to use as our main starting point is when Jesus walks into the temple and he sees how the religious leaders have corrupted the temple. And so we find ourselves in Matthew 21, 12 to 13. Um, and here, Jesus, this is, this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last time. This is the beginning of the end for him. And he walks into the temple and we pick up in verse 12 and Jesus entered the temple he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. Now, I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I used to read this verse uh, when I didn't know much about the history or what's, what's happening and I was always wondering, what does Jesus have against pigeons? <laughs> Why is he so angry about people selling pigeons? What's going on here? So let me set the context. This is the last trip of Jesus to Jerusalem. This is what's going to eventually lead to the religious people working with the Romans to murder Jesus. And... Uh, and you may understand why they started to hate him, because he was calling them out for a bunch of corruption that they had. He talked, sort of, so Jesus, he walked into what they would have considered their own territory. They were the religious elites. The temple was their space to do with whatever they wanted to do. And here comes this guy, and he flips over tables, and he tells these religious leaders who have a very high view of themselves, very inflated egos, he tells them that, in fact, they are the problem, and they are corrupting the worship of God. So you may understand why they started to really resent Jesus. And this was the week before the festival of Passover, where Jewish people from all over the world would come to the temple. They would gather in Jerusalem. Uh, and because people were traveling from such far, far away distances, the religious leaders, they saw an opportunity to get rich from the people who wanted to come to Jerusalem to worship. They assumed, rightly, that it would be very hard for people coming from different nations, traveling hundreds of kilometers, maybe thousands of kilometers to come worship in Jerusalem, that it would be hard for them to bring uh, animals along the way to bring as sacrifices. So they started offering a service, probably looked like they were doing people a favor. They started selling animals at the temple so that they could participate in the sacrificial system. But... They did the same things that movie theaters do nowadays, right? Have you realized this about movie theaters? You, you buy your ticket, you walk in, and then you spend probably twice the amount of money 
on the candy and the Coke uh, and everything else than you did on the movie tickets, right? And all of a sudden, a Snickers bar is like 900 kronars, and just in the gas station next door, it's like 300. You know, all the prices are inflated. Why? Because they realize you're stuck. <laughs> we got you. These are your options, and these are the prices. So are you going to get some candy, or are you just going to want some movie like a uh, like a nerd and have nothing to eat, you know, <laughs> like, and so, so they got you, they, they're going to make you pay. They're going to gain some money off of you. And that's exactly, it's not a new thing. It's not like some, some, uh, new business idea that someone came up with. Oh, no, this is a good way to make money. This is happening 2000 years ago. This is exactly what the religious leaders are doing in this text. Here are people from all over the world coming to travel to sacrifice animals. They need the animals. Oh, but the demand is high. Let's make some money on this. So one of the commentaries mentions that a pigeon that would have cost four coins uh, on a normal day all of a sudden costs 75 coins. Yeah, that's, that's not like triple the price. It's not even movie theater prices. This is like way beyond movie theater prices. This is like almost 20 times the price of what a pigeon would normally cost. And here are these religious leaders Again, looking at them with an inflated view, we're doing the people a service. Of course, we should gain something from this. They're inflating the prices to use the people who are coming to worship to make them rich. Not only that, they found different ways to make money. So here are people coming from all over the Roman Empire and from other nations, and they're bringing their foreign currency over here. And we don't accept foreign currency. We only accept temple currency. So what you need to do if you're coming from uh, some Roman province or some other nation, you need to come with your money and exchange it into temple currency, and then you can pay yourself to go into the temple, and then you can go and worship. But they do exactly what the banks do today. But we're going to make some money. You know, of course, we're offering the people service. We're exchanging their money. So we're going to make some money on that transaction as well. So not only were they exploiting the people who simply wanted to worship God, they were using the name of God for their vain greed. And they were exploiting the poor to do this, and they were hindering people in worshiping so that they could get rich. So Jesus walks in here and flips the tables of those selling the pigeons and those changing the money. He is angry. That's what's happening here. Now, remember that when next time someone tells you, well, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Flipping over tables is not out of the picture, right? That's still on the table. And he calls out the self-righteous religious leaders for corrupting the worship of God and the temple of God. So before we jump into the profound sentence that Jesus is about to say, let me tell you this. There's definitely a place for anger in the Christian life. Remember what our doctrine is. We believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. That's the only way he could have been the perfect sacrifice, right? But here he's angry. So is anger a sin? No. Otherwise, he would not be our sinless Savior. Not all anger is sin. In fact, in, in some scenarios, if you don't experience anger, that's sin. Right? If you see something horrible happen and you just walk along past like, I'm a good Christian and I'm not going to let this bother me, that's not good. There are certain things in a fallen world that should cause us to be angry over injustice. If you see the weak and the vulnerable being taken advantage of, that should anger us. Right? If you see the truth being twisted and hypocrisy thriving, that should anger us. If you see harm being done to other people who are created in the image of God with worth and value, that should anger us. So a lot of people tell me, you know, like, I can't believe in a God who gets angry. I can't believe in a God who shows wrath. But you see, the love of God and the anger of God are not opposites or mutually exclusive. They are two sides of the same coin. Think about our text here today. Why is Jesus 
getting angry because of his love for the people. Because of the love towards the people that they were hindering in worship. Because of the love of the people that they were exploiting for their own greed. That's why he was angry. So it is the love of Jesus that drives his anger in the temple here. His love towards those who are being cheated, robbed, and hindered in worship. His love for the glory of God who was being used by corrupt minds and evil hearts of these religious leaders. Now, check with me, Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice these verses. Be angry, but do not sin. It's a little strange, right? I think for a lot of us, we may have thought about anger as just bad all the time. Paul is saying, hey, there's a place for anger, but don't let it turn to sin. And how does it turn to sin? By dwelling on it. By letting it take up space in your mind to become uh, fester and and to turn into bitterness and, and sinful thoughts. But anyways, that's sort of a side note. Let's go into what Jesus, not not what he does, but what he says now in verse 13. And in the next slide, oh, sorry, I didn't put that in. So in verse 13, he says, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And I want to use this as the initial challenge for us as we go into the next few weeks learning about prayer. And the challenge is this, that we would not only learn about prayer, but that we would become people of prayer. So Jesus here, he's referencing Isaiah 56, 7, who wrote around 700 years before Jesus said these words. And here's the thing that gets to me. So this is written 700 years before Jesus enters the world. Jesus is quoting Isaiah. This is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here's what gets to me. If the temple ought to be known and to function as a house of prayer, that means the people who are worshiping in the temple ought to be known and function as people of prayer. And what really makes me concerned about what I perceive to be deep-rooted prayerlessness in the Western church is this. Out of all the things that God could have called the temple, he called it a house of prayer. Think about all the different things he could have said about the temple. He could have said, my house is to be a house of worship, which of course it is to a certain extent. Or he could have said, my house is to be a house of preaching or teaching. My house is to be a house of music or dancing or fun or whatever. Like he could have filled in the blank. But he decided to go with, my house is to be a house of prayer. Out of all the possibilities that God had, he chose to make his temple known and function as a house of prayer for people of prayer. And for years now, I've thought about the subject of what makes a healthy church healthy. Because I want us to be a healthy church. I want us to be a godly, a biblical church. And there are constantly things being added to this list of mine, but one of the odd things that is on that list of what makes a healthy church healthy is oddly enough, messed up people. (laughs) If we want to be a healthy church, we need broken people. We need weak people. (laughs) We need messed up people. Because ultimately, we're here to rely on a great God. If we want to be a healthy church, we must realize just how dependent we are on a great God and not on our own ability. And in order for us to have a healthy church that is growing with people coming to faith and growing in faith, we must be ready to love, to bear with, and to walk alongside of messy people who are stumbling in their walk of sanctification. A healthy church is made up of messed up people who rely and commune with a great God. So as much as I love the resources that we have today, as much as I love the podcasts, the blogs, the books, the conferences, the videos, what we need above everything else is to 
is, is for God to move in our church and through our church. Like I, I read about revivals in the past and how God moved and how people came to faith in droves. And I want to see that happen today. But typically what happens when God moves in such a way is that there were people of prayer there present long before that happened. And there was a new, renewed sense of faithfulness to the word of God. What we need is for Jesus to build his church. And I wonder, you know, if I, if I were to ask people in Iceland, what are Christians known for? What would their answers be? Are we known for what we're against? Or what we're for? I wonder, like, would anyone say they pray? They give themselves to prayer? The question on my mind for a few weeks has been this, you know, do I pray like our success in anything is fully up to God? Do we pray like our success in parenting and pastoring and evangelizing and husbanding? <laughs> is, that a, is there a word for that? And wifing? You know, that our success in all the different areas of our life is up to God. Because Psalm 127, uh, verse 1, tells us, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And I read that verse and I ask myself, do I pray like that's true? Am I actively showing my children just how deep and inexhaustible the well of prayer is? How can I be refreshed? You know, how I can be refreshed and restored and joy and strength and give wisdom when I talk with my God. Do my kids see this? Do they see just how dependent I am on God to equip me and strengthen me and work in me and through me? Because what they need more than to know about prayer is they need to be children and people of prayer. And in order for them to be that, they need to have a parent of prayer. And I, I don't want to speak to only the physical parents of the room, but in reality, this is the job description for all of us. Because, I mean, why do we call ourselves Christians? Because we want to be like Christ, right? So as we go into the next few weeks studying the Lord's Prayer, we must remember that it sprung up from his life. They are asking for Jesus to teach them how to pray and he gives them this. And why do they ask him? Because they see him praying all the time. We want to be imitators of Jesus. You know, and, and if you're reading with us our Bible reading plan, I was struck by this in, in Luke 5, 16. Uh, I think it was last week we were reading this. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And I'm thinking to myself, He's the son of God. <laughs> He's God in flesh. If anyone didn't need prayer, it's him. Yet he does all the time. Remove himself from the crowds, from the people, to go into the wilderness, to spend time with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And I'm, I'm stopping myself there and asking myself, if Jesus did this, how much more do I need this? How much more do we need this as we seek to be his instruments of mercy in our daily lives? So I want us to be people of prayer because our Lord and our example was a person of prayer. And I want us to be people of prayer because the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament were expected to be people of prayer. And I want, I want it to affect us individually and corporately and functionally as we gather and one of the things that makes us sort of weird as a church in Iceland is, uh, like, like you may have noticed, I don't very often uh, like introduce myself as a priest. Sometimes I do it with Icelanders because they're like, they don't really know what a pastor is. 
they probably think of a shepherd. You, you work with sheep, you know? Uh, and I'm like, no, not exactly, you know? Uh, so I, I might throw a priest out there because they know sort of what a priest does in the state church and, oh, you work for the church and so on and so forth. But you may have noticed, I don't really call myself a priest very often. Um, because one of the weird things about our church is that we believe that if you're a Christian, you're a priest. It's the priesthood of all believers. It's not just a guy with a microphone on Sunday or something else. It's all of us. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you are a priest. Do you think that's weird when you think about it? <laughs> Hello, my name is Priest uh, Robert. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's a weird thing to, to think about it that way. Because listen to what Peter says about all Christians in, in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is not just for the pastors. This is not just for the seminary educated, the people on stage or the ones who speak into microphones. This is about all of us Christians. We are all a chosen race. We are all a royal priesthood, a holy nation within a nation. We are possessed that is owned and ruled over by God. And your job description as a Christian is to be a priest. Have you ever thought about what a priest does? Are you thinking to yourself, man, I need to find some animals, sharpen my knives, you know, like, <laughs> you thought about what a priest does? Well, in the Old Testament, the function of a priest is typically boiled down to two functions, and I put that on the slide here. Number one, a priest represented the people before God. You see this over and over again. He is inter interceding for the people. He's standing in the gap. When the people do something stupid, the priest comes before God, says, please forgive us, show mercy, show grace, restore us. And so he stands in the gap. And secondly, a priest is a representative of God to the people. That is, a priest proclaims the word of God to the people, the will of God by the power and the grace of God. And so do you see that as we go into this topic of prayer, and you consider the fact that you are, in fact, a priest of God. That indeed, if we're called to represent the people before God and represent God to other people, that a vital part of that ministry is to know God and spend time with God. And when it comes to knowing God, it involves following him when he leads us on. It involves reading his word and it involves spending time with him in prayer. If we are to plead for the people we love, for the nation we love, for, for God to move and for more people to experience the hope that we have in Jesus, we need to be people of prayer. If we are to show people who our God is, we must spend time with him in prayer. Like, I think one of the most dangerous things in this world is a praying parent. <laughs> you know? I think in many ways, the only reason I stand here today is because of a praying grandmother, praying dad, praying mom. You don't have to have a fancy education to be able to represent Jesus. But a key is to spend time with him. That's exactly what's happening. And, and I love this verse in Acts 4.13. <laughs> the, the religious leaders there are seeing Peter and he's delivered a sermon about Jesus. All of a sudden, this guy who had denied Jesus just days before, who was totally scared, is now boldly proclaiming who Jesus is. And the religious leaders notice Peter and John. And they say this, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want to be known as a group of people who were, 
when people meet us, that it's obvious that we've been with Jesus. That we have something that this world cannot give. Because Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only hope for our nation, for our world. And I don't know what's happening today. You know, maybe it's social media and everything just looks way worse than it is. But it just seems everyone like, I'm tired of Facebook. <laughs> Everyone's so outraged all the time, so angry all the time. And I'm just like, oh, we need Jesus. Jesus transcends cultures, politics, and problems. And as it turns out, he's right when he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. And if, if we're supposed to be harbingers of hope, we must show that we indeed have been with Jesus. And even in our doing that, we can only do so because of what Jesus has done. Now, in the temple, there was a curtain if you, if you, uh, if you want to read about this, you can go to uh, Leviticus chapter 16 in the Old Testament, where it talks about the function of a priest. There was a, a room in the temple called the Holy of Holies, where only one person could enter it one time a year, and that was the high priest to come and offer prayers for the people of Israel, for God to forgive them for their sins. But one of the crazy things about the moment when Jesus dies in Matthew 27, it is recorded that in his final sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, the curtain to the Holy of Holies that, that blocked everyone else from going in there was ripped apart. And I like how Matthew sets it up because he mentions not only that it was ripped apart, but that it ripped from top to bottom. Not that there was a human down at the bottom ripping the curtain open, but it's almost like God is ripping it from top to bottom. Right, we read in Matthew 27, 50 to 51, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. What that verse is telling us is that there would be no more need for a designated priest to plead for our forgiveness. The great high priest Jesus had done so perfectly and had been the perfect sacrifice. And so as we think about prayer, it's only because of what Jesus has done. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a priest to, to go for us to God to pray. We can come boldly before the throne of grace because Jesus has paved the way. Because of Jesus, we stand assured that we, the imperfect people that we are, have been made clean because of Jesus, who has died on our behalf. Because of him, we have the privilege, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us, to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One of the things that concerns me is just how foolish it would be of us to say yes and amen to these amazing realities that Jesus has made us clean, that we can come boldly, not because we're so confident in our own ability, but rather because of what Jesus has done. If we are saying, you know, yes, amen, that's all true. The curtain has been ripped. We have access to God. And how foolish it would be of us not to take up that great privilege and become people of prayer. What good news that he has torn the curtain that separated us from the holy place. Now this week, I, I simply want you to dwell on the amazing privilege that prayer is and ask you to make time for prayer for you personally. Ask you to slow down instead of wallowing in your worries, to bring your worries before God who grants us mercy and grace in our time of need, to spend time with Jesus and to make time for Jesus. Because if you notice, like, if, if you just give yourself to just, you know, watching YouTube or Netflix or whatever it is, you, you can keep scrolling forever. Like, I, I think we're to the point where we just have endless amounts of entertainment. You could watch every minute of every day. 
You can never be bored. You can just keep going, keep watching. If you're going to wait until you've finished all the things that you want to do before you go to God in prayer, you will never actually do it. And so my worries for us, as someone said it, is not that we will fail in something in life, but that we will succeed in things that don't matter. You know, I think that's why a lot of people have regrets on their deathbed. That's why, I'm, because it, it puts things into perspective. All of a sudden you realize you, you were distracted by all these things and you didn't do what's most important. You didn't hang out with your family. You didn't grow in faith. You were earning a bunch of money all day, every day, and now you die and it's all worthless. We need to make time for what's important. And I want you to like this week, can you think with me like, man, how can I make time for prayer? Just think about daily activities you do. Just think about stuff you already do, right? Most of us take showers every day. There's time in the shower to pray with God. Maybe you drive to work, you ride the bus to work. There's time. 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there. There's time where we could spend in prayer and we don't need to listen to our music or audiobook or podcast and we can commune with God to equip us for the day ahead, to transform and change the way we think and the way we behave, to plead for the people that we love. Would you join me in this pursuit of eliminating hurry out of our life so we can slow down and spend time with Jesus so that we can reflect Jesus to others? And there are three practical challenges that I would love to, to uh, leave with us as we go into this week. And uh, I wrote them, uh, next slide over. If you would join me in this, would you start your mornings off with a short prayer before your day? I don't know uh, how many of you do this, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. <laughs> uh, but man, this is amazing, just small step you can do. It, don't ask, it doesn't have to be a huge step. Just the fact that you wake up, and you train your mind to continually think, okay, thank you, God, for this day. I'm alive another day. Guide me. Use me. You know, and it sets a rhythm for the entire day. It sets a mindset for the entire day that really does matter. A minute or two of prayer before the kids start screaming and yelling out for cereal and all this type of stuff, it really does put your mind in a different perspective. Number two, dedicate times in your day to spend time solely fixing your eyes on Jesus and communing with God. And like for some of us, that, that may be you're just sitting in your car or you're just maybe like me. I'm a rather distracted person. Like I literally have to cup my eyes and, uh, and put them to the floor and just see darkness to just focus on I'm going to talk to God. Whatever that looks like, will you take time to spend time solely fixing your eyes on Jesus and communing with God? And number three, throughout your day, constantly, will you be training yourself to bringing God into the conversations and thoughts that are happening inside your head? And if you have kids, voice that conversation and thoughts. Bring God into the conversation. Pray for things that seem insignificant and pray for things that seem big. And my hope for this sermon series is that we would not only know about prayer, but become people of prayer. And I, I look at that in three different categories, personally and corporately as a church. I want us to be a church of prayer. And then functionally, as we gather on Sundays, I want us to incorporate more prayer from the people in our church. Now this week, with these three challenges, I hope to focus on the personal part of prayer. And I hope that you would join me in this. Join me in pleading for the people we love, pleading for our children, pleading for our parents, our nation, our world, so that God would move. And if you're not, a Christian here today, but you want to experience the hope of living a new life in Jesus, I would love to talk with you after this service. I love that you're here. I hope that you have questions because questions is what God uses to 
to allow you to get to know him more. And if you want to talk after the service, I would love to talk with you. But for those of us in here who are Christians, who have given our lives over to Jesus, who want to follow in his footsteps, I ask that you would consider taking these three practical challenges this week and say, man, I want to grow in this because I think it's going to help us to become more aware. And one of the things that I've, like, I'm always noticing is that Jesus, God, is actually out for our good. You know, when, it, when he says pray for your enemies, have you tried praying for your enemies? It's an amazing thing. When you pray for your enemies, it's really difficult to hate them afterwards. It's really difficult to wallow in anger afterwards. It's really difficult to just go into bitterness. Like, it's almost like God is right, you know, and he's actually got uh, things to say that are for our good. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who hate you because it allows you to not wallow in sin and bitterness and anger. It's amazing when you start praying for the people you love and also for the people who you have a difficult time loving. So join me in this. And uh, next week, we're going to start dissecting the Lord's Prayer. And as I said, the text of the Lord's Prayer is so familiar to us that uh, I think we skip over what's actually trying to teach us. So we're going to break it line by line and, and go into what it points to other places in the Bible. But as for this week, I just wanted to lay the foundation of why we ought to be known as people of prayer, because that's what God called us to do in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because we're supposed to be a priesthood of all believers and what a priest does is to represent people before God and God to the people. And we need communion with God to do that. And so as we go into this week, let's pray that we would be equipped in that area of our lives. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that uh, the things that I've said may have been in line with your word so that it would make sense to the people. Father, I thank you um, for the privilege of, getting to experience your Holy Spirit at work within my own life to experience conviction over things. I'm just, I'm blown away. I'm, I'm so blown away that you in grace and mercy expose areas of our lives where we need to grow in, where we need to be conformed in. And I just think that the many years I've been walking with you, how, how you have slowly peeled off layer by layer what needs to be fixed. And man, what a grace that is, because I, I just know if you would have exposed all my faults in the beginning, I would have been crushed under, under just feeling inadequate. But you are patient and you are kind and you are loving. And Father, as we give ourselves to become people of prayer, Holy Spirit, would you stir up within us a desire to be people who fill the gap, be priesthood who represent the people that we love, that we work with, the nation we live in before you? Help us plead for the souls of this country, for more people to come to faith, to grow in faith, for more people to experience the hope that we have in Jesus and help us reflect Jesus, to the people that we are around every single day. May it be said of us what it was said of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, that we may not be the most educated or smart people, but it's obvious that we've been with Jesus. Father, would you allow us to be passionate about being with you so that you can mold us and transform us and equip us for the ministry that we have. And may we realize one of the ministries that we have is to be people of prayer. So, Father, as we go into this week, as we seek to take practical, seemingly small steps, would you meet us? Would you bless that? Like the story of the boy who brought the fish and the loaves of bread. It was severely lacking in feeding the thousands of people, but you took that. You blessed it and made it so that it fed the thousands gathered. So would you take our tiny steps of faith? Would you take our small steps of faith? Would you bless them? Would you transform us? And would you use those steps? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we go into uh, this week, I just want to remind us, if you have any, any questions or any thoughts that you would like, or if, you, if you'd like to pray together, I would love to meet with you after the service.
Um, and like I said in the sermon, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've not experienced the hope we have in Jesus and you want to know more about it or take that step of faith today, I would love to talk and pray with you. Um, but yeah, let me just pray as we go into this week. <sighs> Father, I pray that you equip us for the work of the ministry that we have. I pray that you give us eyes to see the opportunities around us, the people around us. I pray that you give us your heart for the people around us so that we might love and bear with them just like you love them and bear with them and you love us and bear with us. Father, I pray through your Holy Spirit, would you conform us to the image of your Son? Would you help us? Would you use us to equip one another, to bless one another, uh, to spur each other on to love and good deeds? And as we go into this week and we give ourselves to this role of growing in our prayer, Father, would you give us things to pray for, people to pray for, maybe people we haven't thought about for a very long time. Father, I pray that you would equip us, that you would help us, that you get a heart, give us a heart for the nation that we're in, for the context that we're in. And uh, as we may face uh, various difficult challenges this week, and we may face various blessings this week, may we support one another, may we celebrate together, may we bear with one another and bear each other's burdens, may we weep with one another, may we joyfully celebrate with one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's lunch provided after the service. So I don't have to rush out, but if you do need to, that's understandable. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lostofan Baptista Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopovor, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. The address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland.